Have you been zombified by birth control? Welcome to the Zombified Podcast, your source for fresh brains. I'm your host, Athena Actipus, psychology professor at ASU and chair of the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. And I'm your co-host, Dave Lundberg-Kenrick, media outreach program manager at the psych department and brain enthusiast. Yes, brains. We love brains. Mm-hmm. That's so. kind of what brought us together to, to do this podcast, really. Exactly. Yeah. Yes. Oh. Yeah. So in this episode is about uh, pills and brains, particularly birth control pills and how they affect our brains and our bodies in ways that we have not until now recognized and seen because nobody has really pulled all the work together to see what's going on since our guest Sarah Hill wrote her book. Ah, uh-huh. and so, uh, so what is your favorite thing about this episode that we're going to listen to today? What I love about this episode is that Sarah really uncovers this whole, like this, the physiology of how birth control pills affect our stress systems. And how like the way that we even respond to things in our environments Mm -hmm. is different if we're on birth control pills. Interesting. Yeah. So, and what's the most surprising thing you think about? Um, It was also that. Was also that. that. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it it blew my mind talking to her and like the way that she could explain all these different aspects of the physiology in a super clear way. So, um, it really it it changed my brain. Interesting. So now, does she? say that we should all go off birth control no in fact she's really she tries to be really clear that what she is suggesting is that people just need to be more informed about the effects so that they can then choose a method of birth control that works for them and um that you know it's not it's not like now with this information everyone who is on birth control should go off it it's just you should know that it's potentially going to have those effects and choose a, a method of birth control that that will work for you because not all birth control methods are the same. And what she's really focusing on is hormonal contraception. So, you know, the pill and uh-huh. that the effects of that on uh, our our brains. Cool. Yeah. Um, and so real quick, Sarah Hill. Yeah. So Sarah Hill is a psychologist uh, who works on really biology and behavior. She's at Texas Christian University, and she is really one of the pioneers for looking at physiology and women's health from an evolutionary perspective. Great. Yeah, so let's hear from her. Sounds good. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. Try to fight it, but it's something psychological with you. Makes me act the way I do. I'm not trying to be over-analytical. Retracing time to remind myself how ugly this could be. But something else is taking over me. Zombified, Sarah. 
thank you for having me. Would you introduce yourself in your own words for all of us? Sure. I am uh, Sarah Hill, and I am a psychologist. I'm a professor um, at uh, TCU in Fort Worth, Texas. And um, I'm also the author of a new book called This Is Your Brain on Birth Control. Oh, awesome. Well, I can't wait to hear more about that, about your book, and uh, how birth control zombifies us. I assume <laughs> that that's part of what goes on with birth control. Right. Is, yeah. yeah, it makes you a complete zombie and a slave to, your, <laughs> a slave to artificial sex hormones <laughs> and making you act out their demands. <laughs> <laughs> So how did you like get into this whole field and, and where did your interest in like hormones and birth control in particular come from? Well, it actually um, started when uh, I went off the birth control pill. So I was on the pill for more than a decade. And um, when I went off of it, I felt like I woke up. Like I felt like life was sort of one dimensional and flat. And about three months after I went off the pill, I just realized that recently life had been more interesting and that I was like listening to music again. And I was like wanting to go shopping. <laughs> it's so, like, it's like, I'm like setting women's live back like 65 years <laughs> with this, but it was like, I wanted to look attractive. Like these were things that I totally had sort of forgotten about. You know, I was like wearing my mom jeans and like doing that Mom jeans are back, though. Oh, I, I know. I don't understand. Like, we have these beautiful girls that go to the school I work at, and um, and I see them in these mom jeans, and I'm like, like why Why are you doing that? <laughs> I don't know. For me, I'm, like, super happy because, like, oh, no. I, I, I like the high-waisted. I think you're being zombified by your mom jeans. <laughs> I'm going to turn you into a different person. I'm going to turn you into somebody else. Um but uh, so I went when I went off the pill. It was like I um, I was noticing men again. I was interested in exercising again. I just had more energy. I felt vibrant. Is really what it kind of came down to, and everything felt more three dimensional. And um, and so this really you know sort of intrigued me. And um, but I didn't do anything about it at that point. I was just like, wow, I think the pill might have like really kind of made me a kind of a different version of myself than who I am when I'm not on the pill. Um, and then I was at a research talk um, at a research conference, um, SPSP, which is the Society for Personality and Social Psychology. Um, and there's an evolutionary pre-conference there. And um, our friend and collaborator, Bruce Ellis, was um, talking about some of his research on um, early life stress and, um, and how it influences the stress response. And this sounds like it doesn't have anything to do with the birth control pill. Yeah, but it does. I'm not sure yet. Like, okay, yeah. we're going to get there. We're gonna <laughs> I get am there. on the edge of my seat. Though. <laughs> <laughs> so he was talking about um, the data collection, and he just mentioned offhand that um, they only used men um, to actually test their research hypotheses because um, 90% of the women in their sample were on the birth control pill, and what they noticed was that women on the birth control pill don't have a stress; they don't have a cortisol response to stress. What? I know, which is like what you see in people with PTSD and (laughs) who've experienced chronic childhood trauma. And I, um, so he just started talking about the other stuff and the results. And I was just like, wait a minute, like, can we talk about what goes, you know, on with the birth control health and stress response? Because that was the most interesting part. The rest of the talk was fine. I love Bruce, love his research, 
but I, that was all I could think about. And um, so I went back to my office um, and I started doing some research into, you know, the pill and the brain and the stress response. Yeah. Um, and that's like a thing. Like women who are on the birth control pill don't experience um, a cortisol um, a stress hormone response. Um, to experiencing stressful experiences, which, um, again, is something that you only see generally in the context of somebody who's been chronically stressed or, like, in, you know, in a terrible, you know, warfare type of a context where their stress response went into such overdrive that it just got broken. And this is something that happens in, in pill-taking women. Okay, so if a woman is on the pill and the zombie apocalypse happens... Right. Is she not going to be as good at, like, let's get the fuck out of here right now? <laughs> Probably not. Like, you know, so I, you know, here's the thing is that, um, you know, the, the, the having that stress response um, plays a really important role in terms of our ability to cope with stressors. Um, and it also plays a really important role in terms of, like, shuttling information from a stressful experience and, like, getting it into our long-term memory. So that way, like, when there's another zombie apocalypse, you know, you can recognize the signs, right? You're like, oh, that man is eating that man's brains. <laughs> Last time that happened, it was a zombie apocalypse. Therefore, mm -hmm. we should probably leave and go somewhere else. And, um, and so, you know, not having this response doesn't, like, eliminate stress. And women feel just as stressed out um, when they're on the pill as when they're off of the pill. But not having this response makes them less able to cope with stress um, and less able to sort of absorb the meaning from the stressors in their environment to use later on. Um, and so this, all of this, and I started reading about, you know, the way that the pill um, changes the brain. And, um, you know, and it was funny because, um, you know, I'm a psychologist. So are you. Yeah. And, um, and I study women and I study health. And I was on the pill for more than a decade. Like, I should have known about this. <laughs> you know, I felt like really embarrassed that it never occurred to me that the birth control pill might be changing what women's brains do. But of course it does because our sex hormones play a really important role in terms of the, you know, sort of neurochemical signaling, you know, that influences what our brain does and the version of ourselves that our brain creates. And so when you're on the pill, your brain is creating a totally different experience of the world than when you're off of the pill. Wow. And so, yeah, it sort of, it does zombify what your brain does and um, influence the, you know, sort of version of yourself that you're going to be. And um, so I wrote this book because once I sort of had that stupid, ah embarrassing aha moment for a psychologist, I'm like, oh yeah, sex hormones, they influence the brain. So yeah, let me change that. It's <laughs> <laughs> like, probably going to change what the brain does. Um, I, I wanted to make this information available to all women because we don't know. Yeah, like women have no um, information about what happens um, with the birth control pill, like from the neck up. Everything that their doctor tells them is about what goes on from the neck down. You know, mm -hmm. heart attack, you know, thrombosis, you know, weight gain. Um, but they don't talk about how it changes the brain. And so this is um, uh, my attempt to make this information about how the pill zombifies um, women and uh, changes what they do um, available to everybody and not taking it out of the context of these horribly to, you know, horrible to read uh, journal articles that you and I have to contend with when we're <laughs> doing our jobs. Right. Um, and, uh, and then making it available to, to everybody in sort of a fun and easy to read kind of a format. Yeah. So you were kind of joking about like, you know, setting feminism back, but like, I want to like ask you like about this more because it is kind of a tricky space to be in, right? Where you're like, Hey, the pill 
is having all these effects on us that we didn't know about and we should know and we should be making an informed decision, which is really like a feminist perspective. But then it can be potentially viewed by maybe a previous generation where the pill is such a symbol of women's freedom over their sexuality right so how do you kind of navigate that right yeah I mean it really is a it is a tricky space and I think um I think in the book I did a pretty good job of being very you know this this book is just about you know it's not pro-pill it's not anti-pill it's like pro-women pro-information and it actually um I think it's actually really empowering to women to learn about to start with how their sex hormones influence the way that their brain works um, learning about the different types of pills and then what the research shows about how they influence what women's brains do. Um, and then allowing women to make really informed decisions about their health. I mean, when women don't have this information, which they haven't been given because they're, you know, we aren't taught, like, I don't know about you. I had no idea about the way that your cycle changes your hormones or the way that your hormone, you know, hormones across the cycle change what your brain does or the way that brains even work. I didn't know any of that stuff until I was in graduate school, you know, and, and most people aren't, you know, intellectual masochists, (laughs) you know, and and do that sort of thing. And so women aren't taught about how they work and, um, and then they're not taught about what the pill does. And so I want to give this information to women. Um, so that way, you know, they're able to, um, like not be at the mercy of their doctor of telling them like, well, you, you know, just take this. Right. Um, Because I think that really puts women in a submissive position where they're like totally at the mercy of their doctor's knowledge about the way that their brains and bodies work and actually putting the power back in the hands of women to be able to understand the way that it all works, how it changes on the pill, um, and then be able to make informed decisions about their own health. Because this is really all about empowering women and allowing them to have more choices, not fewer choices. Right. Um, So it is sort of, I think it is a very pro-feminist position, but you're right. There is sort of a this really it is sensitive topic because you don't um, by sort of raising um, the issues that can occur when you're on the pill. Um, it does, you know, like call into question, you know, the thing that has single handedly done more for women in our advancement than any other thing in history. I mean, I can't think of anything. I don't know if you can. Um, that has been more transformative for women than being able to remove the consequences of sex. Um, from sex. Yeah. Because, I mean, I do one thing I cover um, in uh, my book that um, I think is really, I, I hadn't even really thought about it until I was writing the book. And, and actually, like, I, I'm getting goosebumps now even just, like, talking about it because mm-hmm. it was, like, so powerful. Um, you know, I was, I read this uh, article. It was by a sociologist. And she was plotting um, applicants um, to, or applications to law, medical, um, and business schools um, over time. And um, she was interested in the birth control pill um, and how that sort of revolutionized, you know, women's um, career goals and, and advancement. Um, and what was really cool, there was this really compelling figure where it showed the percentage of um, applicants that were female um, before the pill was available to single women and then after. So the birth control pill began being available in the 60s, but it wasn't actually allowed for single women to get prescriptions until the 70s. Really? Nuts? Yes. Totally crazy. That women had to basically show that they were married to get the pill before wow. that. I know. It's just like such stupid sexist bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> just totally. Like, totally awful. Um, but right at night, like, I think it was like 1970, 
was the first year that the pill was made available to single women. And what you see is, and again, I'm getting the goosebumps, 1970, um, 10% of applicants to, um, to uh, law and business and medical schools were women. Um, within 10 years of the pill being available to women, it jumped up almost 40%. Wow. And, and like really what it is, is more than anything else when you think about it, um, is that the pill and like, and just having control over fertility is something that allows women to plan, you right. know, because if you're really thinking, like if you're thinking about like going into a school, a degree where you're not going to get done until you're 30, I mean, the idea that you're not going to be having sex yeah, you know, it's like ridiculous, right? You know, it's like it's like ridiculous in the context of like college. I mean, really, <laughs> high school for some people, you know, <laughs> depending on who you are. Yeah. Um, but I mean, it really um, the idea, like it's it's just it's like the really you, you think like our our great grandmothers couldn't dream that big because right. they would know that there was a very real possibility that all of their hard work midway through med school or whatever it is would get totally laid to dust because of a pregnancy that they weren't anticipating. Yeah. So this is the other side of your brain on birth control. Right. Which is yeah. you can plan for right. the super long term because you have that control. Right. You have control. And it's really, um, you know, so it's like a really, you know, fertility regulation for women. I think it's our biggest, you know, that is the thing, you know, and when you think about like sort of like triggers, theory and like the abatement principle and you know all well you have to like say a little bit okay. at least context what you mean okay. by that <laughs> okay. well so when you think about these evolutionary theories that um talk about like why men and women are different ultimately what it comes down to is women have to bear this huge cost when it comes to sexual behavior there's this potentially really big check she's going to have to write in terms of a nine-month pregnancy that men don't right and ultimately that difference has been you know the sort of source of a lot of the evolution of our sex differences and the, and, and the continued sex differentiation in our behavior. When you take something, we actually remove that price from women. It's a game changer. Right. They're able to, and we've seen that the world has changed where women have become more like men. And I don't mean this negatively. This is going to sound like a, like a Rush Limbaugh, like women are becoming like men. No, it's amazing. Like I'm more like a man than I would have been without, you know, yeah. it's like we're able to be ambitious and we're able to have goals and we're able to have um, sex for pleasure and because you know, it's fun and not just because, you know, we're planning a family right. and, um, and the pill has allowed us to do all of those things. And so it's, um, you know, it, like having that also, it makes us able to enjoy the things that men have been enjoying forever. Um, and so this issue of fertility regulation is just, um, it's so important, but like, it's also important to understand, like, you know, if we're, if we choose the birth control pill as our method of doing this, like, how is that going to change us? And also just like letting women know, um, that science isn't really paying attention to what's important to us. And so I spend a whole chapter talking about the way that men, women have been mismanaged by, um, by medical research and, um, and, and basically putting out as a call to arms that we need to ask for more research on the things that are important to us, both in terms of the birth control pill and how it changes our brain, but also looking for alternative means of regulating our fertility. Yeah. Can you say a little bit more about this issue of like what has been yes. missing in medical research? No, absolutely. This is such an important issue and um, it's something that um, most women have absolutely no idea is going on and it's the dirty little secret in medical research. Um, and that is that 
um, most research um, has been done on males and often sometimes even males only. So as recently as like 1986, um, which might sound like a long time ago, but it's really not that long ago in sort of the history of the world, um, they were publishing papers called like normal human aging that was done only on men. You know, it's like everything that we, you know, most of the things that we know about humanhood and about health and disease um, over the course, you know, of uh, medical research has been done on, on males and not on females. Um, and recently, um, about 15 years ago or so, the NIH has made a push where um, any clinical work, so clinic, like research on humans, um, has to be done using both males and females. And just context, the NIH is the National Institutes of Health, and they like fund a huge amount of medical research. Yeah, any right. research related to things like a birth control pill or like health and that sort of thing will oftentimes be funded by this organization. Um, and they have recently um, you know, made some changes where they're trying to be more um, sort of inclusive with research. And you actually have to include statements in your um, proposals to get funding from this organization about how you're going to be including women. Um, and th that's made things a little bit better, but oftentimes the inclusion of women in research is um, very perfunctory. And it's like they include some women, right, but they don't include enough women to be able to test for sex differences between males and females and how they respond. Mm. But even worse than that, um, so that's, you know, things have gotten a little bit better, but where things really... Um, there still needs to be a lot more changes, is what goes on in a preclinical work. So this is the research that's done on animals and on cell lines. Um, and most of the research that gets done on animals and cell lines about things that are really important to human beings, and especially women. So um, I'll use Alzheimer's disease as my working example. Um, Alzheimer's disease um, is a disease that, of course, influences um, or affects uh, considerably more women than it influences men. Oh, yeah? What's the sex difference on that? Um, oh, gosh. It's 60-40. Really? Yeah. I didn't know that. It's, yeah, it's pretty, it's pretty substantial. Um, and uh, about 90% of the preclinical work that's done on the neural mechanisms that influence Alzheimer's disease. When I say preclinical work, what that means is the research that's done on animals because all medical research... Um, especially in like the, in fields like neuroscience, start out um, in animals, um, and so this is like absolute. This is the front lines of research. Um, things don't get tested in humans until they've been tested in animals, and we sort of go up the chain as research goes. Um, about ninety percent of research on the mechanisms that impact Alzheimer's disease that's done preclinically. So, like, what brain systems are involved? What neurotransmitters are involved? You know, what hormones are involved? are done on male mice only. Male mice only. So females are only included, like, second, right? If something seems like it's working in males, then they'll test it also in females, wow. or not at all. And so there's probably major breakthroughs in women's health um, that we've totally missed because something would have worked in females, but they only tested it in males. And um, I want to provide a little bit of context for you all about why this happens, because, um, you know, when you first hear this, you might think that, Science is full of a bunch of sexists who just hate women and want us all to die and, you know, whatever. Um, but this happens. This is actually a byproduct of the competitiveness of science. Um, you know, I don't think that um, science is, for the most part, obviously, there's still, and I'm sure you've had this, the older male colleagues who 
kind of pat you on the head. Well, because it's cute that you're trying to do science. Yeah, I know. It's like, girl, look at that. Like, wow. Um, You know, so there's still some of that. But I mean, I do think that things have gotten better. I don't know if you feel the same way. I mean, in terms of stuff, it's it's getting getting better. better. Because there's more of us in the, I mean, you know, women are like, we're just kicking men's asses up and down, (laughs) you know, when it comes to getting into medical school and getting into law school and getting into the sciences. Um, Our college graduation rates are better. Um, but, uh, when it comes to doing research, um, you know, science is super competitive. Um, for those of you who don't, um, aren't in the sciences, it's, um, it's really, um, it's really insane how hard it is to get a job. Um, and uh, you have to publish a lot of papers and every paper that you do is based on experiments that you've been running and spending thousands of hours in the research lab hoping that something is going to work out so we can write it up and get it published. Right. Um, and so Not what, to mention spending the money from grants in yes. order to do the work, and it costs a lot of money Which costs to do that of, kind of work. Yeah, so it takes a lot of time, it takes a lot of money to do research, and it, it has to be done quickly um, yeah. in order to survive and actually be able to get a job. Um, and testing on females, and this is true for human females, and it's also true um, for animals, um, requires, if you're going to be doing things, especially thoughtful medical research, you have to control for cycle phase. And for women, there's at least three different phases of the cycle. You have to, like, so then you would need women who are in the follicular phase, which is the first part of the cycle where estrogen is the dominant sex hormone. You need women in the second half of their cycle, which is um, the luteal phase where progesterone is the dominant hormone. And then you would need women during the menstrual phase where both um, sets of sex hormones are low. Um, so at a minimum, you'd need, you know, women in the two phases. Um, at, at, if you're doing really thoughtful research, it'll be all three phases. Um, and, you know, you can imagine that this is very difficult to do, right? It's difficult enough to do in humans. And we can tell people when we got our period last, and they can kind of guess, you know, sort of right. where we're at. And you can schedule things accordingly. Like when we want to do studies um, to, where we control for cycle phase, what we do is we have women call us when they get their period. And we have them come into the lab five days later. And, um, but even that yeah. is hard, right? Because like, we can only schedule women when they call us. Yeah. Whereas when we're looking for a, a male participant, we can just show up. You right. Because um, we don't have to account for cycle phase. And with animals, it's even more challenging because they can't ask the mice when they were ovulating. And so they have to take vaginal smears. Right. And they don't menstruate, right? So right. You, yeah. You can't so you, you can't. Look at that. No, you yeah. can't. You just have to take vaginal smears. Um, look at, and then um, figure out where they're at based on these vaginal smears. And so doing research that includes um, females or women, um, it is more expensive, it takes longer, and yeah. you need three times as many participants, right? And the scheduling is wow. really challenging to do. Um, and this isn't my excusing science. What this is is me telling like everybody how this act, why this happens and that we need to change the way that our journal editors are allowing papers to get in and change what the funding agencies are doing where they don't allow this research that doesn't include women and doesn't account for cycle phase to be getting published. Mm-hmm. Because once that changes, once the gatekeepers to science demand that this is what you have to do, it's going to slow down the pace of science. But it's going to make it more inclusive. Yeah. Well, I think that's also just a great point in general. Like very often, I feel like in academia, in the sciences, People have this attitude of, well, like, because the institutions work like this and this and this, we have to keep doing things the way they are. Instead of realizing on some level, 
we are the, we institutions. Are the institutions. Yes, exactly. It's like we have power to, to change what's going on. Yeah. You know, it's like these journal editors, like we They're know a lot of our them. colleagues, yeah, exactly. right? And, yeah, we yeah. know who these people are. And um, I think that it's something that, you know, it's procedural inertia, right? Like where people are just sort of doing things the it's way that they've always been done. Zombified. Yeah, it is. It's like totally zombified. And so I think that, um, you know, it's like you get into a routine, you know, and it's like the yeah. journal editors and the, and we're right. all in a routine, but it's like, now that we understand the pervasiveness of sex differences and, you know, uh, you know, it's, it's time that we account for, and now that we know the pervasive effects of sex hormones and behavior, we also need to account for that. And we need to have, we need to change the way that science is being done so that way we actually really understand all humans and not just, you know, males. Right. And, and also like once we, get into this like new era, new way of doing science, I think that um, what we're going to find is that women's issues are studied a lot more frequently because it'll be more attractive for people to want to answer these types of questions. Like how does the pill do this? Or how do the sex hormones do that? Because everybody's science is going to be slowed down because everybody's going to have to be accounting for cycle phase. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. Well, and I, I mean, it's also interesting to just think about this whole like burden of zombification on all these different levels, right? So there's like the institutions that have zombified the researchers so that they're only doing the research that is relevant to, or it's most relevant to male health. And then so women don't have the information about how their behavior is being affected by their own hormones or the birth control pills. And so then you have the persistence of like the zombification because the research isn't there that helps us understand the zombification because all the researchers are zombified by the institutions that we're in. No, I think that you like, you have an amazing point. And, it's like totally <laughs> true. and so, um, so I can like, I look at my book as being like a zombie slayer. Like I'm going to be oh. slaying some of these zombies. You should have a picture of yourself on the back, like as the zombie slayer. I want you to take that picture when we're done with this. <laughs> we're done with this interview. Uh, we're we're going to pose for some pictures. It's going to be amazing. And you're going to have it on your website um, with the uh, link to the podcast. There we go. Right, to awesome. the zombie killer, Sarah. Um, but yeah, like I, I think, yeah, women uh, need, I, I think that uh, the more information we have about how we work, you know, whether we're on the pill or off of the pill, um, and like knowing the forces that are zombifying us, right? It gives us control over the zombification, right? Definitely. We get to choose which zombie we want to succumb to. Right. Like, do we want to be zombified by a pregnancy or by the right. pill? Yeah. Like you choose. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. We actually, um, in this season have, uh, episodes with, David Haig about pregnancy zombifying and with Amy Body about microchimerism. So there are many zombification options having to do with reproductive choices. Right. No, this is great. I think that like, you know, the listeners of your podcast can really like listen to each one of these episodes and like really, you know, um, like choose. It's almost like, it's almost like a, like a menu. Like, That's right. You know, like who do I want to zombify me? Yeah. Like, so so what were some of the like biggest surprises for you about how the pill affects women's behavior like as you were really digging into all of this um like for me the the stress response thing was really surprising because i 
just really couldn't understand why um, the birth control pill, but because you, you kind of figure that it's going to be influencing things related to sex, right? Sex hormones, sex, right. you know, seems sort of uh, intuitive. Um, and that it was also influencing the behavior of stress hormones kind of yeah. really. Why is that? Do you have any boy, sense boy. Of that? Uh, no. So, well, here's, here's my sort of ideas. And let me just say that, um, reading this research on the pill and the stress hormones, I felt like Encyclopedia Brown, you know, mm. like I was having to solve this case mm. because there was all of these weird results, but nobody had like put all of the pieces together. I see. And so I... I felt like Encyclopedia Brown. So I was like, you know, sort of trying to solve the case of the missing cortisol. And, <laughs> um, and uh, what it looks like is happening. And uh, so one thing that I learned in all of the reading is that um, pill-taking women, you know, they have this lack of a surge in cortisol um, in response to stress. Like what kind of stress? Like give an example of what, um, what would be in Well, like if you're giving a public speech for okay. example um like that's something that really in- usually increases uh, women's levels of cortisol which is a stress hormone by about five to tenfold i mean it's like a really yeah, it's like a huge surge in your in stress hormones interesting and um and w- with pill-taking women you just don't get that there's like, like nothing that at happens. all or no, no it's like a, and in some cases they found in some studies where they stress women out that way they find that women have a decrease in cortisol what? I know it just doesn't even make any sense I mean it's just broken you know their stress response at least in terms of their the HPA axis which is the part of the brain um, uh, hormone axis that is responsible for the release of cortisol um, just doesn't work the, um, the part of the stress that you feel like your um, sympathetic nervous system response, like epinephrine, this is the thing where your heart races and your mouth gets dry and you like your butterflies in your stomach oh, kind yeah, of yeah, yeah. That, that part of their stress response is totally intact and so that's why pill-taking women feel just as stressed out oh. as the non-pill-takers, um, but they're not having this change in uh, cortisol. And so what does the cortisol do compared to the, you said it was epinephrine? Epinephrine. Yeah, so epinephrine is more of a, um, it's like fight or flight, you know, it's the okay. thing that gets your airways opened up and you know, um, gets you ready to run away, sort of, you know, mobilizes, um, your muscles okay. and, you know. Okay. So they would be okay for that aspect of the zombie apocalypse. Yes, exactly. They could they, run. They could run. Right. But, the, um, but, uh, cortisol, um, it dumps blood and sugar into the, um, into the bloodstream, mm-hmm. um, which allows, um, you know, which allows, of course, you to be able to mobilize those resources for getting away. So they, oh. they might be able to run, but their, their tank might empty pretty quickly. That's interesting. Yeah. And it okay. also, um, it does a lot of stuff in the brain. Um, so cortisol does a lot of things where it primes new cells, new brain cells to be born. So that way you can, um, use that information. Um, you can encode. Um, what's going on and it also helps to shuffle what's going on in like the short your short-term memory and um sort of direct it into your long-term memory because it's telling you it's basically earmarking in your brain this is relevant this is a biologically relevant moment remember it and it happens not only when we're you know in the middle of a wildebeest stampede but it also happens like we're falling in love when you're first falling in love with somebody like you have this huge cortisol response like this huge stress response really yeah and it's telling it's flagging it's telling your brain this is biologically salient this is important remember this shit you know Mm. like this is stuff it's like lay down some pathways here yeah exactly like this is the like this yeah encode 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 and so um and which is why one the one part of the brain that has more receptors for cortisol than any other 
um, is the hippocampus, which is like our learning and memory center of our brain. Really? Yeah. And so, but it's also like spatial stuff, right? Yeah. Yeah. yeah, It's it's spatial stuff and it's, um, and it's learning and and memory. Hmm. And, um, what is, uh, one study that was really provocative, it just came out last year, um, looking at, um, cortisol in pill-taking women compared to naturally cycling women, um, and brain scans at the hippocampus. Um, and what these researchers were interested in looking at was whether um, women who uh, are on the birth control pill might experience hippocampal shrinkage um, because what happens when your body is overwhelmed by cortisol, mm-hmm. which is generally the, the state of affairs that leads to that total shutdown of the stress response yeah. that we're seeing in pill-taking yeah. women, they were interested in whether pill-taking women, you know, even though they don't, they have a flat-lined um, sort of stress response in response to actual acute stressors, like giving a speech or falling in love, um, whether they have higher total levels of cortisol. So we have like levels of cortisol. Um, like when we talk about like a cortisol response to stress or something, we're talking about what's called free cortisol, which is unbound cortisol that your body's actually able to use. Is that like in the bloodstream? It's in the bloodstream or saliva. It's everywhere. And, um, total cortisol, um, includes the amount of free cortisol that's in your body, but it also has um, the amount that's being bound up by, it's, it's a binding globulin. So your body basically turns down the volume up and down in the stress response, in part by releasing these binding globulins that basically turn down whatever it is that's being released. And so, is that like a super quick way of binding up the... Um... Um, like keeping it from being as high or yes, like, wh- yes. Okay. Yeah. So, so the body, the liver releases these binding globulins where if, if one part, well, it also goes to show you that the body, right. is like not a, like a unitary thing. Right. And you mm-hmm. actually have competing demands that are sort of working their way through the body, I think. And, um, you know, and, and, uh, and so like the stress hormones might get released. Um, but then like part of the brain is like, wait a minute, no, no, too much, too mm-hmm. much. And then that orders um, the release of these binding globulins. Um, and so binding globulins actually turn up and down, the, you know, if, if a lot are released, it turns down the volume on whatever it's binding. Okay. Um, and if lo- not a lot of that's released, it keeps the volume high. Okay. Okay. And so to go back to the stress response okay. with women, um, they find that um, these women um, had um, higher total levels of cortisol. Okay. Right? So they don't have a, res- they don't have a cortisol response to stress. But their levels of total cortisol are higher, which suggests that they may have experienced um, the pill might be causing the body to become overwhelmed by stress hormones, which causes. Do they have the globulin? More yes. globulins? Is mm-hmm. that what's going on? Yes. Yeah. So their huh. total cort is really high. Their free cort is really low, um, and that suggests that um, that their body is being overwhelmed by the stress response and has adapted. And the way that their body is adapted oh. is just by dumping um, binding globulins. Um, and so what they also found though, cause what they were really interested in was, um, whether, you know, um, in addition to, do these women have higher levels of overall cortisol, um, do they show other signs of trauma? Like, cause you know, when you experience okay. trauma, um, and experience the, your body being overwhelmed by cortisol, um, it wreaks havoc in the body. It just absolutely uh-huh. wreaks havoc in the body. And, and just to dovetail for a second, and uh, Robert Sapolsky writes about this beautifully in Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers. Um, what kills salmon when they swim upstream um, isn't uh-huh. the swimming upstream. It's the cortisol response that they're um, experiencing that allows them 
to fight their way up the stream. Wow. If you block their adrenal glands um, from producing cort, they don't die. What makes their body fall apart is that cortisol shifts all of the energy away from maintenance into coping with the stressor. So it makes your body fall apart, literally fall apart. So this is like one of the potential risks in the zombie apocalypse, actually. It is, yes, yeah. is your stress hormones. And so your body is like, you know, which is, which is why people who have PTSD or experience chronic stress, their bodies will just shut down the stress response because it will kill you. Like if you uh, have too much, it's so damaging because it's taking all the investment away from immune function, away from, meta- you know, metabolism, away from cell repair, um, and just dumping it all to dealing with a stressor. And, uh, and it makes your body fall apart, literally fall apart, like a zombie. And so, um, so... So that's actually the zombie apocalypse. It is. is. We're falling apart we're, because our cortisol responses are just... Outrageously high. <laughs> yeah, so the, these folks um, wanted to look at whether women um, who are on the pill exhibit these other signs that are associated with being overwhelmed by the stress response. And one of the things that happens... Um, is um, you get hippocampal shrinkage because that area of the brain, like I said, it has a number of receptors, probably more receptors than any other part of the brain for this hormone um, because it helps prime learning and memory in the context of stress. Hmm. Um, But if there's too much of it, it starts killing brain cells. Um, It'll start killing cells in the hippocampus because Uh because it's so sensitive to court. Um, If there's too much of it, it'll it'll just go and self-destruct. And so they took brain scans in two different samples, and these were really large samples. Um, I think it was, it was, it was over a hundred women. I feel like it may have been, it was like close to 200 women, um, 200 women in each sample. So two separate samples, they did this, they did brain scans and they found that, um, that women, um, on the pill had hippocampal shrinkage, they relatively smaller Mm -hmm. hippocampi relative to women who are not on the pill, which again, suggests that it's doing something that is causing the body to become overwhelmed by cortisol signaling, which is probably causing the body to actually shut down the stress response. And nobody really knows why. Do you have any speculations about that? I do. Um, so I read, because um, I was, of course, really intrigued by this. And yeah. Like I said, I was like Encyclopedia Brown, where I was like, what? try to piece, it together. Yeah, trying yeah. To piece it together. And then I'm like, oh, okay, I think the body is actually getting overwhelmed by stress, and then it's shutting it down, and da 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 And then I was like, well, why would it do this? And so my guess was that this probably has something to do with the progestins in the pill. So um, progestins are artificial progesterone, um, and there's different versions of them. There's like four different categories Mm -hmm. of them. Um, And unlike um, the artificial estrogen, which is in the pill, um, because most um, birth control pills have an artificial estrogen and an artificial progesterone, which is called a progestin, um, the artificial estrogens are actually derived from estrogen, and they're pretty, um, you know, the binding affinity to uh, to estrogen receptors is high, okay. um, meaning that, you know, they bind to estrogen receptors and, like, not other receptors. Okay, right? so they're yeah. acting in a pretty similar way. Yes, exactly. That yes. our body would be functioning. Yeah, so they, yes, exactly. Um, the progestins are usually manufactured, most of them are manufactured from testosterone, Oh, really? Um, yeah. And um, and the binding affinity isn't great. So where do they get the testosterone? Um, I don't know where they get the testosterone. That's an interesting, that's an interesting, probably some guy in Cleveland <laughs> <laughs> providing all the testosterone. Um, but testosterone is like a really modifiable molecule, apparently. And, um, and actually, some of the reasons that women experience breakouts and stuff, sometimes women will get hair growth um, and stuff on the pill, uh-huh. um, is because... Um, is these these uh artifact these progestins because they were created from testosterone 
um, that sometimes they also have binding affinity to testosterone receptors. So it's actually turning on women's testosterone. So our, a bunch of our cells have receptors for testosterone. We have like really low, super low levels usually, right? Yes. Yeah. But yeah. then you bring in these progestins and some and they, of them are like, oh, let me. Yeah. They, like basically, you know, when you have an, a hormone and it's like going onto a receptor in a cell, it's basically, it's almost like putting a key into the ignition and turning it on. Mm-hmm. Right. And so um, this thing is like able to, you it's know. It's like a master key that opens well, a bunch of locks. It opens a bunch of locks, you know, yeah. and, and like usually, you know, when you have progesterone in your body, it'll only, it's a key, a bunch of keys floating around in your body. It'll only be able to turn the ignition of cells that have progesterone receptors right and then they'll do their thing that they do when progesterone's around um but when you have something that's a progestin that's also binding to testosterone it'll go and turn on the ignition to all your cells that have testosterone receptors and that can lead women to experience breakouts and um you know hair in places hair, they don't want yes, hair in places they don't want yeah. like embarrassing places and um but to get to the cortisol thing um I read a paper in a chemistry journal, which I don't recommend to anyone, (laughs) because I was trying to figure out whether there was, because these, um, like I said, these progestins, their binding affinity is not perfect. I mean, because they're monkeyed with molecules and, um, and, you know, and they, they do things that they might not, you know, should be doing. And uh, in, in court, and so cortisol and progesterone are actually very similar structurally okay. um, uh, in terms of a molecule. And so I was sort of interested in whether progestins might be doing something to cortisol receptors. Interesting. So I did this research and I ended up having to read, like I said, this chemistry journal. And then I had to go talk to a chemist to make sure that I understood <laughs> the language. And I'm like, I don't know about this. But um, long story short, the um, there's some research showing that um, some progestins will actually, um, they're close enough, they're similar enough to, um, to uh, the to, um, cortisol to sometimes bind to cortisol receptors. Really? Yeah. And so the body may be getting overwhelmed by cortisol signaling from these progestins because these progestins might be sort of turning on the body's stress program right like turning that key and making those cells run the stress program yeah even though there's not actually you know like actual actual cortisol in the system it's the progestins making the body think that there's cortisol in the system leading it to you know but and then the body kind of habituates almost yeah it does and so it turns down the stress response um because it thinks it's being overwhelmed by stress and And there's like not like you're not actually getting the other signals that there is like legitimate stress around so then it's like i don't know the detecting threshold moves around or something yeah no that's really interesting because i hadn't even thought about that but um maybe wow that's a really interesting idea so what you just said you might not have meant it this way but i think you did um, was that experiencing a surge in like cortisol, this, this stress hormone, but you're not experiencing that in the context of um, the other types of stress response, like your yeah. sympathetic response. So there's no right. epinephrine being released, only cortisol. Yeah. That could be a signal to your body that um, that it's chronic, that it's like a chronic stressor. Right? Yeah, well, and also that, you know, if you're not getting all the other cues that like, yes, this is a stressful situation, right. then it would make sense that you'd sort of habituate to that cortisol being higher and be like, okay, that's not a good right. cue that the rest of the body should be responding to for 
creating like that stress response. Right. Because yeah. it's not like crossing over like a threshold of like, oh yeah, we should be responding to this. Right. Yeah. No, that's really interesting. No, that's a super interesting idea because it could, you know, yeah. So, um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know what the exact answer is, but right. my guess is that the, um, the progestins are, um, being picked up by the cortisol receptors and making the body go into hyper stress mode and that the body is just like shutting it down. Yeah. It's like, All right. That's it. We're done. Um, no more cortisol dumping tons of binding globulins into the bloodstream and, and women who are on the pill do have tons of cortisol binding globulins a lot more than um naturally cycling huh. women um which is which is why they don't experience that stress response because there's so much binding globulin that um that it just gets totally eliminated right well and maybe that's like actually the mechanism for the like turning down of the detection threshold if you put right. all these globulins out then it's like yeah. We're not paying attention to yeah. cortisol. Well, yeah, exactly. And that's and that's exactly what it is. It's like we're not paying attention to that. And like what does that mean for women who are on the pill? And what does that mean for their brains? I mean, it's certainly, you know, the hippocampus thing isn't great, but even just like, you know, given that cortisol sort of takes things from our short term memory, so just like our, you know, our RAM, you know, our action, uh-huh. like what we're thinking about and what we're going through, and shuttles it into, you know, our long term memory, um, I feel like it could make our lives feel more flat. Right. You know, because it's you're like not, nothing feels meaningful. You're not encoding things. Yeah. And, and things aren't being flagged as being biologically yeah. meaningful. And does that make us feel like life isn't meaningful? Like little zombies just... Yeah. Like black and white. Well, and that's because, you know, I, I kept thinking about my own experiences of when, when I went off the pill, feeling like all of a sudden the world felt more three-dimensional and it felt like there were more opportunities and... You know, it was like more vibrant and dynamic. And I wonder whether part of that wasn't what was going on with my um, stress response in that I just like nothing was being flagged in my brain. Like pay attention to that, Sarah. Like that's worth, you know, like that's interesting or like, you know, wow, that's a meaningful event. Yeah. Well, it's almost like if we're going to consolidate from day to day our experience and say, okay, here's something that tomorrow I should spend more of my bandwidth on or tomorrow I should spend less because it's not important, right? Like in order to do that, you have to have some mechanism for following up, right? Like, you know, I should wake up tomorrow morning excited about this thing or whatever. Yeah. And like in the ability to adapt, you know, and like do like, I recognize this situation as this, and I can now do a better job of coping than the first time I encountered this scenario. And so, um, yeah, that for me was one of the more um, surprising things that I read about. There was, um, you know, the effects in terms of the way that it influences our other brain systems is really pervasive. And um, because there's research showing that it influences... um, oxytocin signaling so oxytocin is um you know the chemical it's like the you know bonding hormone affiliation hormone it's the The love hormone the the cuddle hormone the the sex hormone yeah yeah it's all about like your but it can also be the prejudice hormone right the in-group favoritism favoritism hormone yeah um but um there's some research showing that it um interferes with the regular oxytocin signaling pattern when you say it you mean the the pill in general or we know what parts of it no we don't know what parts of it we just know that women that um women who are on the birth control pill like normally when you um here's what they did with the study um they gave people intranasal oxytocin um, mm-hmm. which, um, you know, so people are basically snorting, <laughs> 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 snorting, 
snorting, um, doing lines of oxytocin. Um, and then they show people pictures of their romantic partners, and then they take brain scans. And um, in addition to showing them pictures of rom- their own romantic partners, they were showing them pictures of, like, random strangers and stuff. And, um, and what you generally find is you shoot somebody up with oxytocin, um, and you show them a photograph of a loved one, um, and their brain, like, has a fireworks show. Mm. Like, oh, that's my person. Mm. Yay. Um, or for some people, their dog. Yeah, their yeah. dog. I'm yeah. sure would do the same thing. Yeah. But, like, you don't get that with strangers. You know, it's just like these, um, you know, Makes people. Sense. Yeah, are close people. Um, and with the pill-taking women, nothing. Internasal oxytocin. Show them a picture of their romantic partner. Their brains didn't do anything what? different than they did when looking at a stranger. And like, here's why this is, here's why this, there's so much provocative research out there on what this does. And we don't know why, but why this is particularly provocative, um, at least when, when I was thinking about this research in context, um, is I was thinking about children and babies. And so one thing that we know is that oxytocin is released in like copious quantities when, after you give birth. Um, it's like, you know, breastfeeding and all of that releases oxytocin. Um, you know, holding, cuddling a baby, oxytocin. And um, the reason that our brain is uh, releasing oxytocin in these contexts is because bonding with your baby is, like, really important, obviously. Right. And um, and it's part of the evolutionary mechanism to help keep us, you know, bonded to our children. Most doctors um, will put you on the birth control pill right after you have a baby because they don't want you getting pregnant right away. Wow. So now imagine you are a woman who's on the birth control pill, um, and even if you're breastfeeding, like they put me on because I breastfed both my kids, um, they put me on a progestin-only birth control pill, and the progestins are the things that are doing the funky stuff. You know, I mean, there's just wow. no question in my mind about who the money maker is and all these weird effects and it's the progestins, and. Um, you put these women on the pill and their brains are releasing all this oxytocin because it's so important in bonding. And if that's not causing your brain to experience neural fireworks when holding your baby, like could that play a role in all the postpartum depression wow. that we're seeing? Yeah. Because women aren't feeling bonded. Yeah. Um, Cause that could really interfere with that. And, um, and because getting zombified by your baby is actually so important. really important. Yeah, it's like super important. Yeah. And so, um, you know, some of the implications of that research um, in terms of what that means for women. And is anybody studying this right now? No. Like, do we like, do people need to be studying this right now? Absolutely. Absolutely. Like we need to um, ask for this research because um, postpartum depression is a huge huge issue for women's health and it's something that a lot of women struggle with and it increases it's been increasing you know um for a very long time now and we just keep seeing that the rates of it go up and um, i think that this could be something that's really important to look into yeah so so there's not really like anything functional really going on here in terms of like oh it makes sense for the body to respond to the sex hormones in this or this way it's really you think it's just a byproduct of the fact that these progestins are having these widespread effects yeah yeah and you know it's, it's interesting that you asked that question because i actually started when i started my idea to write this book and was reading these papers um my thought was that the body was just running its luteal phase program all the time so like when a woman is going to yeah okay. um, so uh, when, you know, uh, the, the way that the birth control pill works is it um, makes, it, it, you take these artificial sex hormones, which are, um, they have like a sort of high ratio of um, progestins to estrogen. 
It's um, it's basically t- sending a signal to your brain that you're in the luteal phase of your menstrual cycle, which is the second half of your cycle. Um, and this is the part in the menstrual cycle where the body isn't um, having to release sex hormones. Your body is like basically turning off the precursor hormones that lead to, um, you know, uh, egg development and then, um, you know, hormone release by your ovaries. Um, so the, these artificial hormones tell your brain, stop releasing precursor hormones yeah. or to, you know, create sex hormones because we've already got a lot, you know, we... It's also like when you could be pregnant, right? Am I right about that? Or It, it, it yeah. actually, no, it really, oh, okay. it really looks more like the, uh, well, I guess you could be pregnant because usually, I mean, it, it all happens during the second half of the cycle. Yeah. Um, so it's basically telling the, the body that... Um, don't, it tells the brain to stop releasing precursor hormones, yeah. so that way the body's not creating its own sex hormones. It's sort okay. of the, the like you know um, USA Today version of what what goes on, um, and so these hormones tell the brain don't release precursor hormones, so the body's own levels of hormones are really low. There's these artificial hormones that um, are associated with a phase in the cycle where an egg is not being developed and fertility is is basically just sort of stopped. Okay. Okay. So are we good on? Okay. So the pill usually just kind of has you standing still in the luteal phase, which is like, it's, that's after you would have ovulated. Yeah. It's it's after you've ovulated. Yeah. um, Because like before you ovulate your levels of, um, like prior to ovulation, your levels of estrogen begin to increase. But progesterone, that other hormone is really low because progesterone actually gets the most of it gets released by this little temporary structure that forms once an egg is released. Okay. So once an egg is released, um, the, the follicle that it was hanging out in actually yeah. starts releasing this hormone progesterone um, in copious amounts. And um, and so whenever you have high levels of progesterone um, relative to estrogen, that's a phase in the cycle where an egg is just out there and right. the body's waiting to see what happens. Right. Like, all right, we're just going to hang out, yeah. put our feet up, yeah. and see whether or not that well, thing gets fertilized. And, yeah. um, and but so, then progesterone is like, progestation right so like it actually if it's high it can encourage a pregnancy to stick around right if it's yeah yeah it gets the body like it gets the body ready to um to have an egg implant yeah it's like the implantation phase you know cycle and so it makes you kind of sleepy and relaxed so that way you don't go out and like go bungee jumping (laughs) And um, it's kind of like, I, in my book, I refer to it as, like, the mom genes part of the cycle. It's huh. like the earth mother. Because, <laughs> like, it's really about, like, you're, you're hungrier, huh. you're sleepier. You're basically doing all these things that your body is, like, just, like, like let's see if this, um, e- this egg that I released, like, that maybe got fertilized is going to implant. It's, like, all about implantation. So those are, like, the days when I want to, like, go home and make a steak and then go to sleep early. Yes. Okay. That, that is, yes, that is luteal phase activity <laughs> right there. <laughs> and, um, and so, you know, the, these hormones, my, so my original idea about what might be going on with the pill is that women would just be acting like women in the luteal phase, you know. Right. That like would be, like, the first place and, to start. Yeah. yeah and, and hungry and... You know, and all of this. And, um, but then when I actually got into, you know, so that was like sort of my evolutionary, like, here's what's happening and it's going to be functional and, you know, whatever. But then I actually got into the neuroscience of it all and it was like, oh no, this stuff just messed, like, these things are not running a normal brain program. Like, like they are running a different brain program, a totally new brain program that hasn't been observed in nature. So this is like not, you know, right. This is not a, a normal brain program. And so mm-hmm. then it was like trying to figure out what, 
version of women does it make then? It doesn't make women into, you know, they're not going to be the first, like the estrogen dominant version of themselves, which is a sexy, fun, uh-huh. you know, flirtatious version of themselves or the, you know, the luteal phase version of themselves, which is kumbaya mom jeans. <laughs> um, it's going to make them into this zombie, right? The zo- mm-hmm. Like the zombified version of themselves because it's a totally different yeah. set of, you know, rules for Where the brain. They're like feeling the stress, but they're not actually getting the benefits that usually you would have from experiencing something that's stressful and then being able to like consolidate that and use that information. Right. And it changes their mate preferences in some kind of funky ways that don't really seem to be serving functions. Like um, they find that women who are on the pill, like men with more feminine faces um, Mm -hmm. than women who are not, which, you know, and, and part of that is kind of similar to what you see with the luteal phase. Because during the first half of the cycle, when estrogen is dominant, that's the um, like sort of follicular phase. Um, that is, you know, we kn- that's usually associated with a heightened preference for social dominance and masculinity and some mm-hmm. of these um, sort of swagger. Um, yeah, I'm just like I'm just basically telling you what I'm looking for in a romance. So if you have all these qualities, um, I'll give my phone number at the end of the podcast. So, um, but like all of these, you know, different, um, all these different qualities um, aren't as much preferred during the luteal phase. And pill taking women look a little bit more like luteal phase women in mom jeans, kumbaya uh-huh. um, version of themselves uh, when it comes to the pill. But again, not exactly. It's a little different. Yeah, it's a little different. And um, so, looking at the ways that it changes, um, and it, you know and this one's a little bit less interesting just because everybody knows about it, but it, um, it changes, um, some of our neurotransmitter systems that regulate mood. Um, you know, which is why uh-huh. the idea that, you know, a lot of women, um, stop taking the pill, um, because of mood related side effects. Um, what are the main mood related side effects? Um, uh, anxiety and depression. Okay. Um, and in fact, um, you know, especially for women who are, um, adolescents. So, 15 to 19 year old women, the increased risk for depression and suicide is staggeringly higher than it is for women who are not on the pill. And this is from really powerful research done um, over in Denmark where they have those health registries that allows them to test on the whole population of people. And they've looked at um, like the suicide rate of people who are prescribed the birth control pill compared to a control group of people who were not prescribed the birth control. So it's basically all the women in Denmark on the pill, all the women who are not. Wow. Because um, they can look at what people were prescribed. Yeah. Um, because they have these health registries. Um, and they find that, especially for 15 to 19-year-olds, the rates of depression um, are significant are significantly higher by, um, I forget what the magnitude is. In some cases, it's like 200% higher. Wow. Um, and then women who... Um, than women who are not comparably aged and the suicide risk is something like three times greater. And so, um, it can really, especially on adolescent brains that are still developing, um, have a really, um, powerful and, um, not positive impact on, um, mood. It seems to, those mood effects seem to, um, sort of decrease, um, once women get a little bit older, like 20 and up, it doesn't, mm-hmm. it's, it's still, there's still a significant increase. So it's still something to look for, um, especially if you're a woman who's on the pill, um, but uh, it's it's not quite as um, staggering as yeah. it is for the younger women. Does 
that whole suite of effects on mood have to do with the cortisol issue at all? I think cortisol is a part of it. Um, I think that's definitely a part. Another thing that I think is going on is um, what goes on with um, levels of what's known as uh, allopregnenolone. Okay. Yeah, I, I know. know. That is. I'm, yeah, we'll just, um, I don't want to have to say it too many times. <laughs> it's like a mouthful. But it's a, um, so it's a metabolite of progesterone. So when progesterone gets broken down in the body, it releases like subchemicals. Okay. And one of them is um, allopregnenolone. And um, this um, actually stimulates GABA receptors in the brain. Yeah. So GABA, um, GABA is a, an inhibitory neurotransmitter. And what this means is, um, you know, our brains run on these neurotransmitters. And there's kind of like two varieties um, of them, like sort of two main varieties. There's excitatory ones, which make our brain like super ready to, you know, that's like when we're really alert it usually means we have excitatory neurotransmitters going uh-huh. on that our, our brain is like primed and ready to go. Yeah. When we have inhibitory um, neurotransmitters, this is what makes us feel kumbaya. Um, and anything that stimulates our GABA receptors, which is GABA is an inhibitory neurotransmitter. Um, anything that stimulates those receptors is going to make us chill out and relax. Um, this is actually why alcohol is so amazing. Huh. is it stimulates GABA receptors. And that's like what makes us feel zen. Like, ah. Or yoga also stimulates GABA receptors. Meditation. Um, so there's uh, other options besides alcohol, is yeah, what you're exactly. saying? <laughs> yeah, yeah, but um, yeah, Xanax. Um, yeah, so yeah. Xanax, alcohol, um, meditation, yoga, all of these things um, stimulate these receptors. And so you kind of get a sense for the way that they make us feel, you know? Right. Um, and uh, one of the things that stimulates these um, receptors um, and helps regulate our mood is, is allopregnanolone, this, this, progest- this progesterone metabolite. Um, and this is dur- why during the second half of the cycle, during the luteal phase, we want to relax and hang out by the fire and, you know, mm-hmm. kumbaya. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, what the research in the progestins that are in the birth control pill don't have the same effect. So when these birth control pills get broken down in the system, they don't release allopregnanolone. And mm-hmm. so, um, and it's not just what goes on in women's cycle or in women's brains during the second half of the cycle. If you look at levels of allopregnanolone, um, even in the first half of the cycle, you know, so um, during, when progesterone isn't the dominant hormone, what you find, um, if you compare women who are in that estrogen-dominant phase of the cycle when progesterone is low, and you compare those to women who are on the birth control pill, um, the women who uh, are on the birth control pills have significantly lower levels of allopregnanolone um, than the non-pill takers, like a lot. I forget exactly what it is. Mm. I feel like it's like 170% less or something. It's like some wow. like crazy difference. And, um, and they looked at expression of allopregnanolone in the brain. You have to do that with mice. You can't do that with humans without a really yeah, bad thing happening. And, um, and they find that expression levels in the brain are, um, actually su- suggest that what goes, is going on in the peripheral blood, which is how they're testing levels in humans okay. is probably, um, underestimating oh my gosh. what's actually going on in the brain. And so women who are on the pill, um, could a lot of the, you know, sort of idea, the, the current wisdom behind why they ex- can experience these mood effects of anxiety, yeah. which then often, will, oftentimes will lead to depression because you feel like you can't cope, yeah. um, is because the brain isn't, isn't chilling itself out yeah. because it's lacking this, um, this important metabolite that plays a role in mood regulation. That makes sense. And yeah. I mean, it also makes sense that 
the whole cortisol thing could be playing a role because if like your body is getting, you know, all this like flooding with cortisol and then all the binding globulins try to like clean it up. But like, there's all this like weird signaling where it's like, Oh, you should be stressed. Oh, but you're not. not. And like, yeah, no. And then like not having things flagged is biologically meaningful. So life feels meaningless. You're stressed. Yeah. You're not chilling out. Right. I mean, there's like so many things that are kind of working against us in, in terms of mood with this. And, um, you know, when research has tracked, like what, um, you know, uh, when women go on the pill, what is the likelihood that they're going to continue on the pill or how many women are going to discontinue it? And if they do discontinue it, why? Yeah. And what they find is that about half the women who start the birth control pill discontinue it. I, I think it's half. Yeah. Um, it's, it's somewhere in that ballpark. It's a pretty substantial number. Um, and of those who discontinue it, the number one reason, of course, that they discontinue is because of side effects. Um, and the most common side effect that causes women to discontinue it is mood. And so, mm-hmm. you know, the thing that usually makes people stop taking the pill is that how it makes them feel, which is also kind of interesting in the context of my book, because, um, you know, when you talk to women about the birth control pill, I don't know about your experiences, but I know every time I talk to women about the pill, the thing that we always talk about is the way it made us feel. Yeah. But yet there's no information there, you know, until I, until this yeah. book, like I was like, why, you know, it really surprised me when I, when I sat and read this stuff and I was like, I need to write a book on this if there's not one, but there has to be one because this is what we all talk about. Right. Everybody knows from their experience that it has really substantial effects on us, right? Like right. Yeah. anybody and who's been on the pill knows yeah, that. Or, I mean, yeah. Yeah. Or they, or they had a friend who had an experience and, yeah. um, and so we all talk about this and it's all very much a part of our like sort of consciousness as women. Um, and yet we haven't really been able to have our, like have our experiences edified by right. research, and I think that in some ways, um, like my book um, is is going to be edifying for women. I think it'll be important because I think that our doctors tend to, you know, write off uh, like the way that we feel, like like treating our mm-hmm. mental health like it's a luxury, you know, yeah. that um, that you know, or a character flaw that we like want to be happy and mm. feel good and feel vibrant and feel in tune with our sexual. So that's another thing that, like, sort of um, I talk about in the book is just, like, how much, um, you know, because it influences women's, like, feelings of sexiness, and it will also influence the sexual desire and all these other yeah. things. And it's, like, these are really important things. Right. And, um, and and especially, you know, um, when we think about that we were, you know, sort of designed by this evolutionary process that puts sex as sort of, like, you know, priority one um, you know, and so sex is like a really important part of like feeling like who we are is like feeling like a sexual person. And like, and, and, um, and, and I think that our doctors, women's doctors, um, have really, um, and, and things have gotten better. There's a lot of really amazing doctors out there. Um, but I think for a very long time, they sort of trivialized, um, any sort of experiences that we might be having, especially with our sexuality and, um, and like how important that is to feeling like a woman and feeling vibrant is like feeling in tune with your sexuality and yeah that makes a lot of sense yeah and I mean it feels like there's also a really long time and I don't know if this is changing or not but where the pill would just be prescribed for like oh you have acne or your cycle is not typical or it was just it still is is yeah it still is like people are being prescribed it for um, or just feeling like my period, yeah, my periods are irregular. Well, guess what? You know, it's like your periods, especially when you're young, 
and your sort of hormone axis is learning about your body, that's exactly what's going on is your sex hormone receptors in your brain are sort of figuring out how your body works. And so it's trying to, it's trying to figure out how much precursor hormone it needs to release in order Mm. to get your ovaries to stimulate and whatever. So it's troubleshooting. Yeah. And so during that time to be putting people on the pill, when your body's learning about itself, like it's dumb to right. start with, but, um, you know, so like yeah, putting women on it for irregular periods or, or skin problems or just, beca- um, or doing it to eliminate their period, you know, cause there's yeah. that whole idea that just go, you know, you can take these five month sequences or three month sequences, um, just so that we don't have to bother with a period. Um, like I, I think that I'm hoping that this book will like sort of open our eyes to like why that's a big deal. So I think right. that we've been really cavalier about it. And I think that it's time that, we, that we're more serious about it and that right. we just sort of t- understand what we're doing. And it's not doesn't mean that that's terrible. And for some women, that's still going to be the best decision. Right. And that's their decision to make. But they need to be able to make that decision having all the information. And they just haven't been given that until now. Sure. Okay. So I have to ask, like, from doing all this research and seeing the effects of the pill, like, what are, like, good ways for women to have that control over their reproduction like if they don't want right the pill pill. okay yeah and let me just say that um you know for some women um it's the pill still can be the best answer yeah if you are at a time in your life when a pregnancy would be absolutely devastating um you know i um i would like if if i were the person i was in my 20s um i would i would still go on the knowing everything i know i'd still go on the pill or now that I know about these other alternatives, which I'll talk about. So I'm just, um, you know, I would either go on the pill or, um, yeah. you know, the copper IUD okay. is something that a lot of people um, seem to tolerate well. Um, so the copper IUD is the one that is non-hormonal. There are hormonal versions out there. Um, and, but don't let your doctor fool you about the hormonal ones. Like, even though they are low levels of hormones and even though they're being administered, um, you know, in your uh, cervix, Instead of, you know, with a pill, they go everywhere in your body. I had a doctor one mm-hmm. time tell me about the, um, about the, it's, it's the Mirena, um, because the hormone levels are low and it's, you know, down in your cervix. Yeah. Um, well, you know, it's, it, it, and it's like the hormones are like more <laughs> localized. Yeah. And hormones go into your bloodstream and go everywhere. Like, yeah. There's no such thing. But as your a doc- localized, the doctor my was doctor, trying to say yeah, that. that yeah. It's like, yeah, this is like a more localized which is, yeah, no, there's no such thing as a localized hormone effect. Um, but <laughs> anyway, yeah, I found a new doctor. And yeah. so, um, uh, the, the, um, the copper IUD, um, it is like, doesn't have hormones. Um, the only thing about the copper, some people have a not great reaction to this IUD just because, um, and, and it, this is rare. So like I, I would try the copper IUD, like, mm-hmm. um, it, it, that is, um, uh, I think a good option, but my, like just only my one caveat that I was want to say about it, um, to be sort of even handed yeah. is that, um, it causes, um, an inflammatory response. So, um, the way that the copper IUD works is they're actually not a hundred percent positive. Isn't that interesting? Yeah. So they this, just know it works. They just know it works, but they don't know exactly why, which is really interesting. Um, they, they you know, what I think is going, I think that's something to do with the inflammatory response that's that going make on sense. locally because yeah. your cervix and, and your uterus are basically like, uh-uh, nope, we're, we're sick. <laughs> like, yeah. We're not accepting any delivery of, uh, <laughs> of, 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 of 
fertilized eggs at the moment. Yeah. Come back later. Um, and so it, it does cause um, an inflammatory response. And it's, it's not like a huge inflammatory response. Um, but women who are on it oftentimes have relatively elevated in- inflammation, um, especially, you know, localized inflammation. Um, but that can influence moods. Um, and so I've known women mm. who have gone on the copper IUD. Um, I've in, and let me again preface this by saying that I know more women who've gone on the copper IUD had an amazing experience. And I know this, but I do know some women who had mood side effects on the copper IUD and they're like, why am I experiencing mood side effects? I'm like, it's inflammation. Like, because inflammatory activity, um, changes your mood. Right. It can make you research. feel it depressed, you, right? It can make you feel depressed. Yeah. And um, it can make you feel anxious. And um, and so, uh, you know, even though it doesn't have hormones, it, it, there is still a chance that it could change what your brain is doing yeah. just because of its influence on the inflammatory uh, response. And so that's like my only sort of caveat. But that's like if I was 20-year-old me, uh, that would be probably the thing I would try first um, or like, uh, you know, just going, um, going uh, back on the pill just because not getting pregnant was so important. Right. Um, if you're at a time in your life where... Um, it's a little bit less scary if you got pregnant, but you're still trying to avoid it. I think that just, you know, um, using a, a tracking app and to like mm. know where you are in your cycle. Um, and then, um, just like using condoms during your fertile days is like a really nice possibility. Yeah. Um, just in terms of like natural, you know, um, sort of family planning. Um, and cause there's only really like five days during the cycle when you can conceive. Yeah. Um, and so that leaves you a whole lot of days of condomless sex, which right. I think most of us are shooting for, <laughs> <laughs> um, because it's like the worst. Yeah. Um, it's but, also nice to know where you are, right? Like if you do the tracking, then you're like, Oh, this is where I am in my cycle. And yeah, no, I love, be- I love that. Like, um, I think that it's so cool now that women are able, like we have these apps and you know, where we're able to learn more about who we are. And I think that, um, you know, a lot of women have sort of intuitively been picking up on like, oh, I feel, you know, on these days, like I am like, this is when I am a sex kitten, you know, it's like this day to this day is like usually, you know, um, and there's a lot of research showing that women have more sex, um, right. Like when estrogen is high and they're feeling hot and sexy and, um, and then later on in the cycle, they don't want to, they want to have the steak in the in bedtime. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, and so, yeah, it's, it's really nice knowing where you are in your cycle, just, um, in terms of understanding your mood and who you are a little bit better. Yeah. It's kind of a, it's a really kind of a cool and powerful thing. So that's another possibility. You know, it's not a hundred percent foolproof, obviously, when you're doing something like that, there's, um, it's going to be a little bit of a higher error rate than there is with something like a you know, a copper IUD, um, which is why I wouldn't, like, if I was, you know, in medical school, right. you know what I mean? Um, I probably wouldn't, I would opt with something a little bit more fail safe just cause I'm, you know, I tend to be a worrier and a control freak. Um, <laughs> and so, you know, I'd probably go that route, but I mean, that's also like a really good route. Um, and I should probably start to research this a little bit more, but like, do they still make diaphragms? Like, I don't know. Do people use those? I think so. Okay, that, but I don't that's know. That's a thing. Like, really. that's probably a thing that people could do. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that feels like a thing someone could do. Yeah. Um, to pr- protect themselves against, um, you know, a pregnancy that they weren't um, hoping to have. That is, I think, has a pretty decent, you know, pretty right. decent rate. But um, I'm hoping that science is going to give us something better. I'm hoping that we're going to get this thing locked up at some point yeah. in the next, you know, decade, two decades in a way that 
um, sort of minimizes, um, you know, the uh, sort of collateral damage within the body, which, I mean, it's, which is tricky. I mean, this is a hard issue yeah. Um, because our bodies, you know, given that we were created by this evolutionary process of reverse engineering, it's messy. Like right. our body doesn't have like, you know, it's not like if you built something where it's like, well, this wire does that and this cog does that. Instead, it's like this hormone affects everything. Right. And this molecule also affects everything. It's because everything has been cobbled together through systems that were already in place through this messy evolutionary process. Yeah. Know? Right. So everything's interdependent in our body. And so it's really hard to like yeah target something because nothing can be targeted because it has all of these other mm-hmm. things and um so but i'm hoping that you know i'm hoping that we're gonna something genius is gonna happen yeah and we're gonna have this thing locked up because i do think you know regulating our fertility is like so important for women and it's done so much for us in terms of our ability to support ourselves keeping ourselves out of poverty keeping ourselves from having children that go into poverty um it's really been a game changer it's been a great thing for women that way yeah. Well, and it's kind of cool how, you know, you're coming at it from an evolutionary perspective. And then with the neuroscience, that kind of like opened up this whole other realm of like the complexity of what's under the hood. Because I think yeah. often like with the evolutionary perspective, we think about like, oh, the design of the system and like how it's working. And it can be a little simplistic in terms of yeah. How, like, at least the, the, like right. the first attempt at yeah. approaching it, but yeah. then the, the neuroscience really just, like, opened up this whole realm of, like, what the mechanisms are and how you're getting all these, like, different effects that you wouldn't right. be able to hypothesize from just an evolutionary perspective without knowing about how the mechanisms are working. Right, right, which is why sharing brains is, like, is like so important because right. the ability to um, really understand the most vexing problems and like, you know, human nature and everything else is, um, is dependent on our ability to borrow from is, is to consume other people's brains and <laughs> take different perspectives and sort of apply them to these vexing problems. Right. We'll only really be able to understand brains if we share our brains yes. in order to learn about all the things that we need to learn about in order to decode them I guess yes yeah Yeah. exactly no I totally totally agree yeah okay so any words of wisdom here for the zombie apocalypse so usually like at the end of Mm -hmm. the episode I ask like you know if we sort of take the zombification that we've been talking about here which I guess would be like being zombified by being on the pill yes and you take like those effects and you like ramp them up like even higher then what kind of a zombie apocalypse are we in? And like, you know what I mean? Like it, if everybody was affected by hormonal contraception in that mm-hmm. kind of way, but like even more, we're like, we couldn't have a stress response right. as effective. And like, what, what right. zombie apocalypse is that? What zombie apocalypse? So I'll tell you, how about this? How about I answer, I'm going to answer the question, but I'm answering like, let me tell you about the zombie apocalypse that's already going on. Go for it. Can I, can I tell you yeah. about this? Because yeah. this is like, this is, this is, the birth control pill does not just zombify women. It is zombified men. And so I'm convinced that. The just gave me the chills. I know. <laughs> so, um, we know that one of the most powerful motivators of any sort of behavior for men is women. Right? <laughs> <laughs> 
So like getting sexual access to women has been the reason that men have done everything that they've done in history, right? There, there's a reason there's a muse, like a muse is a thing because women inspire men to do great things, right? It's allowed them to build cities and size skyscrapers and whatever and whatever. Um, most things that men have done that are impressive and noble um, are because they were really hoping to get laid. <laughs> In fact, like um, Aristotle Onassis once said, if there was no women, all the money and power in the world would be meaningless. Hmm. Think about that. It would hmm. be. Men wouldn't care about it anymore. So this is coming back to the pill. I don't know. I wouldn't mind to have some no, women. power and resources. Well, no, no, to men. Like okay. women, the reason that, because we like it, right? Like I would, I would still want it too. The men don't care. Men only, like men want power and resources for access to women. So if you removed women, men wouldn't care about it anymore. We still would. We'd go shopping. We'd go get those cute <laughs> boots that you bought today. <laughs> so, um, so women are a very powerful source of uh, motivation to men. And there's just no question about it. There's tons of research that shows that this, that this is the case. So the birth control pill... Um, has sort of opened this new area of sexuality for women, right? We can go and have sex and we don't need to worry about whether some guy's going to be somebody who's worth keeping around, right? If he's kind of cute and he's fun and we're having a good time, we can have sex with him if we want to. So basically, sex has become um, something that's a lot easier to come by now for men than it used to be. Um, and I think that the birth control pill has actually zombified men's brains and made them totally unmotivated to achieve anything because they no longer have to in order to get laid. I think the reason <laughs> that men are not graduating from college or even going to college at the rates that they used to, that men aren't getting good jobs at the rates that they used to, because if you look at the trends, uh -huh. it's not just that women are doing better. Men are actually doing worse. So men have started hmm. to um, sort of decline in their um, college graduation rates their um, applications to advanced degree programs, men are, and it's, again, if you look at the trends, it's not just women, you know, are sort of doing better. Women are doing better, but men are doing worse. Hmm. And I think that one of the reasons that men are doing worse is that their brains are zombified by the fact that they can get laid, despite the fact that they are living in their mom's basement <laughs> <laughs> and are playing video games all day. So I think that I think that men are that they're demotivated, but there's also like a whole like there's this whole incel phenomenon too, right? The guys right. who are living in their mom's basement and can't get laid and are really frustrated and angry, right? About yeah. that, yeah, no, and they yeah. feel like they should be getting laid and they're not. So yeah, they're just, yeah those are like entitled assholes yeah yeah um but yeah anyway so i think that um i think that the the pill has uh can zombify um men's behavior um zombify men's brains by changing the behavior of women which changes um then the behavior of um men and it probably is going to zombify the world because think about this for a minute women you know now that we have the pill and it's, uh, uh, the women are sort of postponing getting married till later because, of course, you can. And all of this, um, there's more, um, you know, that means that people are single longer, mm -hmm. right? And before they're getting married, which means that there's going to, like, increase the need for, like, single person housing because there's going to be more people living in those things for a longer period of time. Okay. Right? It'll probably increase the demand for interesting things in cities like museum exhibits and things that people do when they're single. Mm -hmm. Right. And so I think that the pill probably by changing 
you know, sort of the tempo of life and making people single longer, um, allowing women to, cause you know, there's a, there's a really great book by Rebecca Traster called all the single ladies. Mm-hmm. Um, there's been a real big rise in the number of women who are just like not getting married and it's cause we don't have to. Yeah. And, um, and you know, the pill has played a really instrumental role in a lot of this. And so, you know, it's changing societies and then that's going to change the kind of jobs that get created and it'll probably change the demand for things like organic arugula. And, you know, so it's probably, you know, zombifying the world. I mean, it sounds like a pretty good zombie apocalypse. I know. I like an amazing one, like with all the arugula, you know, <laughs> that you can imagine. So, yeah, but like, I, I think that the pill is probably zombifying the world. So we're, we're in the zombie apocalypse of the birth control pill. Some aspects of it are problematic. Other aspects are not at all. Yeah, exactly. Those are amazing. It's like everything, you know, everything cuts both ways. I don't yeah. think that there's anything out there that doesn't cut both ways. And the birth, birth control pill is no exception to this. Yeah. Some good, some bad. Well, Sarah, thank you so much for sharing your brains with us on Zombified. Yeah, thanks for listening. And if the whole world says that we're is a production of Arizona State University and the Zombie Apocalypse Medicine Alliance. Thank you to the Department of Psychology, the Interdisciplinary Cooperation Initiative and President's Office at ASU and the Lincoln Center for Applied Ethics. Also, thanks to all the brains that help make this podcast. Tal Ram, who does our awesome sound, Neil Smith, our amazing illustrator, and Lemmy, who is the creator of the song Psychological. Thanks also to the Z team, our undergraduate team who works on many aspects of the podcast, including creating the transcripts. Follow us and support us. You can find us on Instagram and Twitter as Zombified Pod. And on Facebook, we are Zombified Podcast. Our website is zombified.org. Also, you can support us by going on Patreon and giving $1 a month. Um, We have no ads and we're totally an educational podcast. So your support would be greatly appreciated. And if you can afford $5 a month, that would be even more awesome. You can also support us by buying merchandise. Um, T-shirts and stickers are available on our website and all of the proceeds go to support Zombified Podcast. Uh, At the end of each episode, I share my brains. I offer something, a story, sometimes a connection to my work, 
or uh, wild speculation or just some reflections from the episode. So today what I wanted to offer is um, some reflections on um, the things that Sarah was saying at the end of the episode. I mean, they were her speculations, but I want to offer some of my own. Um, she was talking about how she thinks it's easier for a lot of men to have sexual opportunities now because birth control exists. And I was thinking about this and I, I wonder if it's not that overall um, men have more, or that it's not that every man has more sexual opportunities, but maybe there's actually a skew where certain men have more sexual opportunities. So the idea is, you know, if women are seeking more sort of short-term sex for pleasure and gratification because birth control is available, then it seems like the sexiest guys might end up having a larger proportion of the overall sex that's happening. And if that's what's going on, um, then it would actually make sense that a large proportion of men who aren't being chosen as these short-term sex partners um, might be getting frustrated. Now, of course, it's not okay for anybody to act entitled to get sex or get angry at women that they aren't getting sex. But I do think that it's important for us to understand, you know, if there are patterns um, that we should just know about. We should take a direct look and see exactly what's going on. So I'm not a sex researcher, but somebody who is should look at this. And uh, maybe there is already work on this. Um, if you know of some of it, definitely uh, tweet it and tag Pod so that we can share and um, potentially have an opportunity as a community to put our brains together to understand um, what is going on. I, I actually think the whole, you know, issue of um, the incels issue and if, um, you know, there are people who feel like they are not having sex and it's not because they don't want to have sex, but because they don't have an opportunity, that that's something that we should at least be looking at as um, something that could be... Um, that there could be some societal solutions. There could be some ways that we can think about, you know, how to um, reduce inequality of um, sexual opportunities, obviously without um, infringing on anybody's autonomy. So it's complicated, but um, I just wanted to put that out there because I think it is a really complex issue um, and something that we should be taking seriously. So with that, I want to thank you all for listening to Zombified, your source for fresh brains. I know it's crazy, but it seems so logical. I can't deny that there is something supernatural with you. Makes me act the way.